Today, the Office of the Representative for Children and Youth released Detained Rights of Children and Youth Under the Mental Health Act, a report which highlights the urgent need for the provincial government to better protect young people involuntary detained under the Mental Health Act. To speak more to the report and its findings, pleased to welcome to the show now BC's Representative for Children and Youth, Jennifer Charlesworth. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for inviting me, Jeff. Now, before we start to kind of dig into the actual problems that you found while putting this report together, I, I think I wanted to start off by kind of getting a bit of a scene setter here, getting a little bit of context. I mean, you noted in the report how the frequency of children and youth who are detained involuntarily under the Mental Health Act has increased 162% between 2008 and 2018. But I guess what exactly does that mean? Can you kind of quantify that into just how many kids, I guess, are, are really being forced to, to undergo mental health treatment through this? Right. So the data that we have shows that the increase was from nine, about 970 young people in 2008 to 2,545 young people that were involuntarily detained around the province in 2018. So it's a very significant and alarming increase. And in that, we are not sure exactly what's contributing to that. We have some suspicions. We have some ideas that we put forward. But one of the things that we were concerned about is that there's a lack of data about those young people to help us fully understand what's contributing to that increase. But, you know, the increase in uh, is far outweighs the increase that you see of the use of involuntary detention for adults, for example. So we know something's going on there. So you said you don't really know exactly why this is happening. You have some suspicions. I guess what could be some of the things that might trigger um, someone to be detained under the Mental Health Act? Yeah. Well, I think the main thing that we're concerned about is that we know that there's a lack of there's a, a lack of a robust array of voluntary mental health services and supports to support families and young people as their mental health concerns are uh, manifesting themselves and when they need early intervention or addressing. So in the absence of having those voluntary systems, what we're concerned about is the default, especially for families that are very concerned about the well-being of their young people or the young people themselves, the default is hospitalization and involuntary detention. Uh, so that's what we're concerned about is that this is resulting from the lack of other alternatives available to young people. And, and one of the things your report does kind of go over is the fact that, uh, you know, kids who are put in these positions really don't know what, what their rights are and, and you know, what, if, they, if they don't want to be undergoing treatment for whatever reason, you know, maybe they're not ready for it. There's a number of factors that could be at play, right, as to why someone might not be in a position to actually benefit from having some kind of mental health treatment. If they're forced into it, particularly, they're not going to be as receptive, I wouldn't think. Um, so what can be done, I guess, in that regard in order to make sure those who are in this position are aware of what their rights actually are. Right. Well, I think that's such a critical thing. One of the things that we learned was that the young people that we spoke with actually didn't disagree with their diagnosis. They knew that they needed help. But what happened for them was that they were involuntarily detained. And then there was a whole cascading series of events that many of these young people experienced. First of all, they had no idea as to what their rights were, that they could, for example, ask for a second medical opinion, that they could seek a review by the Mental Health Review Board, that they had some rights as to what would happen with them. So they didn't know that. So that felt that they were not only not, they didn't have their liberty, but they didn't have 
dignity or respect because they didn't have the opportunity to have some influence. Then on top of that, within BC, there's a provision called deemed consent. So for anybody that's involuntarily detained, they don't have to, they're not asked to provide consent to treatment. Decisions can be made without their explicit consent. So just by virtue of being detained, they now don't have choice uh, over what happens to them. So that really affected young people because many of them said, I knew I needed help and I was looking for healing, opportunities to deal with my trauma, opportunities to deal with the things that have given rise to the mental health crises. But what they experienced instead was sedation or isolation and punishment or fear. And that did not support their growth and development. They didn't build the coping mechanisms that they were looking for. So it's both like, how do you help them understand what's happening to them? And how do you engage them in finding those pathways towards their healing and their growth and development? So there has to be, I guess, some sort of bridge here, right? Between um, involuntarily detaining someone to put them into some kind of a program and helping someone actually seek that help themselves, right? I mean, if if we go yeah. with the latter, that's obviously going to be much more productive. I think, you know, any adult knows that if you are wanting help, you're much more likely to actually be receptive to what you're what you're listening to, what you're hearing if you if you want it yourself as opposed to being forced into it, right? So how do we kind of yeah. bridge that? Is there a way to do that? I know you have a bunch of recommendations within this report. It, is that something you looked at? Yeah, so what we looked at was really what was the experience of young people once they were detained. So the notification of rights, the opportunity to have some say in their treatment decisions, um, the uh, appropriateness of the kinds of treatment, especially for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children and youth. There was a lack of culturally appropriate or culturally connected Mm -hmm. services. So we took a look at that, but I think it's really important to think... So how is it, I think you raise a really important point, like how is it that young people can get the help before it's a a crisis situation? And I have to say, my hands are up to so many of the medical care folks who are trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, and they don't have enough tools in the toolkit to enable them to do the less intrusive measures that I think we all would want. So we really need to focus in on the voluntary system and then if it's necessary for a young person to be hospitalized and involuntarily detained, then let's make sure we're doing it in such a way that they still feel like they have some say so that we can help them find the coping mechanisms. Then the other thing we heard, uh, Jeff, that many of these young people, after their hospitalization, there wasn't a really good discharge plan. So here you've had somebody in that might have been in, in, in detention for like, three to six months or longer and then they're given a slip of paper and told to show up at the psychiatrist's office in a couple of weeks. We really think there needs to be much more at the back end as well so that they can be carefully and thoughtfully and kindly transitioned into supportive situations in their family or in their community, which, you know, too many of the young people talked about uh, being discharged into homelessness Mm -hmm. or discharged into situations that were not healthy for them. So then again, that's what we need, the good voluntary system, because we should transition them into something that's going to serve their healing. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the discharge piece that you mentioned there is really, really important. It goes beyond just this 
passport as well. But, um, you know, I think it's something that any any sort of mental health worker is probably looking to see an improvement upon, no matter if you're dealing with youth or adults or whatever the situation, um, you know, making sure people are set up to succeed once they leave is really, really important. Um, and it's a Absolutely. difficult one to do, right? Yes, it is. You know, and there's some encouraging signs for sure. I think there's some good movement. But things like supportive housing is really important. Um, making sure that people have a basic income that will allow them to feed themselves well or get the medications that they need. So there are a number of things that are not about, quote unquote, medical care so much as social care that mm-hmm. will allow these young people to be successful as well. Mm-hmm. well one thing, too, I wanted to highlight um, was the data collection piece you talked about how it's kind of inconsistent across the province this is something that we are also also seeing right when it comes to this pandemic and um you know when it comes to COVID 19 data it's not necessarily consistent from health district to health district from health region to health region um and and i believe you're seeing that here as well when it comes to this issue around youth mental health and and um you know unwanted detain detention i mean how do we improve that i mean it feels like it should be pretty simple uh we go to the the ministry of health and we just say you know can you make sure that we're getting a, a a data sheet or a or something that's really easy to fill out so you can just tick off the boxes so it's you know clear what is going on and and you know it's easy to compile the information and you have a good picture of what's going on province-wide why is that not happening and how concerning is that and, and do you think if if there was an improvement under that data collection piece we could see some easier solutions maybe or, or maybe things are easier to identify if we have more consistency Absolutely. And, you know, we've been in a number of our reports recently, we've been speaking about the importance of data and how what we find, whether we're talking about children and family development or health um, or even education, although education's done some good work there too, um, is the inconsistency in data or the basic lack of collection of data. So as an example, one of the things we found was that there's no collection of information around indigeneity. So we don't know how many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children and youth are involuntarily detained. We only have anecdotal reports, but it's an out you know, it's disproportionate, mm-hmm. but it's pretty hard to plan if you don't have the data. And that's what we found here is that, you know, sometimes it's collected, sometimes it's not. Even if it is collected, one health authority might collect it differently than another health authority, and they might not have the same kind of standards, so you can't roll it up to see a provincial picture. So we definitely focused on that in the report and said that there's information that should be collected in order to help inform the planning and it should be collected in a standardized or uh, regularized way. So I think progress is being made in some areas, but it's, uh, you think it would be fairly straightforward, mm-hmm. but these are, these are complex systems and uh, there's some work that needs to get done there for sure. And it's not just Ministry of Health and the health authorities either, I should right. say. Right, of course, of course. Um, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this because we've been talking for quite some time, Jennifer, but uh, 14 recommendations or key recommendations related to this. Um, there was two that I just kind of wanted to highlight that I thought were probably things that could be done rather quickly and could have a significant impact. And this is, of course, just speaking from my own opinion, but the two that I wanted to highlight were notifying an independent body every time a young person is detained under the Mental Health Act and mandating this body to provide right 
rights, advice, and advocacy. I think that's something that makes a whole lot of sense and honestly kind of surprises me isn't already done. And the other one was amending the Mental Health Act to ensure isolation and restraint are only used as a last resort, which again, I think makes a whole lot of sense, right, to try to, you know, have yeah. that as, as the final step in if, if people just are unwilling to accept treatment and you're worried about their well-being if they don't get it. Uh, you know, are those things that are, you believe, could be easily, uh, you know, changed and, and would make a significant difference? I think absolutely. So it's interesting because our report was predated by the Ombudsperson's report called Committed to Change and another report by Community Legal Assistance Society. And uh, this is what Jay Chuck recommended is having an independent rights advice body. So my hope is that with us adding to the chorus, uh, we, this will be something that will be put forward more quickly. Um, I know work is underway, but it really needs to be escalated because it's fundamentally important that people know if they're going to take their rights uh, to liberty away, then they need to know what's happening to them and they need to know what their recourse is and their procedural safeguards. So absolutely, that's very important. The other one around isolation and restraint, I'm so glad you identified that one because when you think about it, you know, having somebody that's detained that's scary enough, but then when we start to have the use of um, uh, discipline, isolation, or restraint, or medical restraint, um, sedation, etc., that's an even more significant um, uh, action. So we have to be darn sure that it's being done in a way that is um, allows a young person to understand what's happening to them, and only as a last resort. What we were concerned about is that there aren't guidelines that are sufficient in our view that would ensure that this is being done appropriately and there is no kind of collection of data, again, and oversight to ensure that there's, um, that it, it, you know, if that happens, if that last resort is, is needed to be employed, then at least we know what's going on and it, that, that young person's rights are still protected. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I encourage anyone listening, if, if you know they have any interest, to go online and read the report. There's a, a lot of interesting stuff in there. And, you know, things that I was reading where I was kind of shocked a little bit as I read them, just, you know, sub, not necessarily surprised that they they are happening, but maybe just, you know, I, I try to keep myself a little bit ignorant. And, uh, you know, that's not a good thing. So happy to learn more about it. And uh, I think this is really interesting report. So thanks for the time, Jennifer. Always appreciate you coming on the program. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. Take care. Awesome stuff. That's BC's representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth.